Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. COVID cases going up despite lockdowns. So what do the experts want? More lockdowns. Also, cancelling Christmas, the politics of masks, and the erasure of John A. Macdonald. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome to the Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. It is absolutely my pleasure to have you aboard on the program here on this Friday, November the 13th. If you thought 2020 was bad and you think Friday the 13th are bad, well, this is Friday the 13th in 2020. But hopefully by this point you've been able to manage to get through your day without any of the accursed uh, uh, traditions of, of whatever uh, either one has in store for you. So it is, again, my pleasure. Thank you for tuning into the show here. Let's talk a little bit about not The Masked Singer, which is the uh, big show that's on that I, I don't quite understand wherein singers wearing masks uh, sing and you have to guess who's under the mask. I guess, you know what, everyone needs a little bit of joy. I want to talk about the mask ringers, the people who are promoting masks as being this panacea for the coronavirus pandemic, despite the fact that none of the measures that were put in place a few months ago have avoided the period we're in now that politicians are calling the second wave. So all of these things that were done, these draconian measures to lock us down to mandate masks in public spaces. None of those have avoided what is increasingly seeming like it is the inevitable. Let's take a look at Ontario's latest projections. Ontario could see up to 6,500 new daily cases of COVID-19 in December, latest modeling shows. Now, why this is so significant, and I've, I've talked about the fact that cases are a, a bit of a misnomer. Well, I guess not a misnomer, but cases are, are not the best measure of the pandemic. You have to look at deaths and, and hospitalizations to really grasp the severity of it. But the reason I'm focusing on this is because right now, Ontario is setting records every day with the number of new cases it's adding. Uh, most recently, uh, just shy of 1,600. So they're talking about modeling showing that in the coming weeks, in about a month's time, there could be could be four times as many cases each day as there are this week. The article says the new modeling predicts the province will reach 2,500 new daily cases by that time if the growth rate is at 3% or 6,500 if growth is at 5%. Dr. Adelstein Brown, who's one of the Ontario experts behind the projections, said a 5% growth rate is in line with the current situation or even slightly optimistic, noting the growth rate over the previous three days was 6%. So to get down to brass tacks, here's the advice put forward by the Ontario experts. If we continue on with the current levels of restrictions, I would not expect to see any deviation from the current results. You'd continue to see growth. I do not believe that there's a way that the cases will change without action. So here's where we are looking now. The government is getting advice from people that say what we actually need are more lockdowns. We need to further clamp down. We need to further restrict activity and what people can do. And, and that's the only way that we can avoid this. Now, let's talk about modeling here because modeling is more of an art than a science. And I think that this is particularly true when you look at how the modeling data have been wrong throughout most of the pandemic. I remember when Ontario first released its modeling and, and I was a big believer in that. 
about it. And Doug Ford, I thought, did a very good thing in sharing it. He said, I want the people of the province to see the data on which I am making decisions. And those data were actually saying that we could be looking at 100,000 deaths if the virus were just left to do its own thing. That was what those initial reports were saying, about 100,000 deaths, and, and even beyond, they were saying thousands. And the reality has fallen short of those projections. And that's a good thing. We don't want it to be that bad. But the whole point is the modeling tends to reflect the biases of the people that are putting the models together. And right now there is a predisposition to say that these things are going to keep getting worse and worse and worse unless we put more and more lockdown measures in place. And that's exactly what's happening in Ontario. Randall Denley, also in the National Post, says Ford is about to lock down Ontario further, hopefully more carefully this time. And he's talking about the modeling that I just shared with you. And he's saying that, yes, these uh, details, if they're true, will put a significant strain on the healthcare system. And they're calling for specifically more lockdowns. And then he points out, I think, which is a very sage analysis. He said, the uh, analysis that we've had so far suggested that the partial lockdown that closed restaurants and gyms for a month across much of the province had only a limited effect on case numbers. There's a good reason for that. Those sectors weren't contributing much to the problem in the first place. And herein lies the rub. The things that are done to supposedly stop the virus from spreading by governments don't tend to target the areas where transmissions are actually taking place. The hospitality sector is responsible for a minuscule, minuscule portion of coronavirus transmission and no more than, than any other uh, place it could be. And the hospitality sector is one of the most hard hit by lockdowns because it's deemed so-called non-essential. And, you know, I actually had this conversation with someone the other day. Anything is an essential business if you rely on it to feed your family. So this idea of essential, non-essential, I, I think, has been one of the most dangerous things to come out of the pandemic because government has decided unilaterally that things are, are either necessary or unnecessary. But because of that, they've kind of decided that, okay, well, therefore, the virus has a more of a likelihood of transmitting at a necessary or at an unnecessary business than a necessary business instead of focusing on, okay, how can we do everything safely? How can we adapt and amend our practices so that, sure, you can go bowling safely, or sure, you can go to a movie theater safely, or sure, you can go to a dine-in restaurant safely. Why is, and again, when Ontario rolled back from stage three into this like multicolored approach that they have now, one of the first things to go in these so-called hotspots was dining in at restaurants. That was the thing because, okay, no, we're back to takeout only for restaurants. And I'm thinking here, well, wait, wh where were the cases in restaurants? So when they put in these further restrictions, they're not actually addressing the question of, okay, what is the biggest impact where are the areas that are most responsible for it? No, they're saying what are the easiest things to shut down. And they're going for the low-hanging fruit, but it isn't about the actual case. And where things are happening are people that are deciding they aren't paying attention to the rules or aren't interested in it, people that are in close contact, people that are having dinner parties, people that are uh, traveling in groups, people that are doing all of these sorts of things. This is where the numbers are coming from. 
And that is not going to be changed because that's a behavioral thing by most of the legislation, unless you want to start putting in this Stasi-esque, you know, door knocking, the you know, the, the 12 a.m. knock on the door just to make sure you don't have anyone from another household in your home. So we have to stop believing that there's going to be a way to regulate our way out of this when all of the data we've seen to date have been uh, really overemphasizing the risk. And more importantly, all of the things that have been targeted, the things that have been scapegoated, have not actually been responsible for it, which is why these restrictions haven't actually done anything. And when I said a moment ago that any business is essential if it is your business, I, I have to share some of the effects that these measures are having on people because I, I don't really think the media is paying attention to the effect of the pandemic on the businesses that are being shut down as much as they're uh, talking about the people that are affected by it medically, which is, again, a valuable story. Calgary bar and gym order owners describe how they'll adapt to the latest COVID-19 measures. So this is uh, responding to Alberta, which has put in what Jason Kenney is uh, pretending for right now. And I don't say that as a swipe at Jason Kenney. I just know that anytime someone says something's just for two weeks, we've learned that that isn't the case. A two-week uh, pause, basically, on on recreational sports, restricting bar and restaurant hours and fitness classes and stuff like that. It's just for two weeks. Jason Kenney says this two-week pause is, quote, our last chance to avoid more restrictive measures that I and most Albertans desperately want to avoid. What it is is that for uh, two weeks from uh, this week until November 27th, you can't have an indoor Zumba class or whatever, no team sports, no amateur choir, which is unfortunate because I was hoping to uh, get out to an amateur choir event. In, in Calgary at some point. I haven't yet, but you know, you never know. It's you don't know you're you don't know what you're missing until someone tells you you can't do it. And this is going to be in Edmonton and uh, surrounding areas, Calgary and surrounding areas. And uh, Jason Kenney has said, yes, you know, fitness operators, sports organizations, they've done a good job so far. This is just saying that at this province, at this point in the province, we need a to get rid of anything that has a chance of spreading infection from one to many. And anything where people are, are using exertion or singing or yelling, anything like that is going to have a greater risk. But I, I'm still wondering, where are the cases? Where are the cases at the Zumba class? Where are the cases at a church choir event? Where are the cases in some event like this? Where are the cases of people getting it at a restaurant after 11 p.m. when restaurants and bars will now have to close down. And if there's data that, that are showing that there is a surge happening after hours, you know, I saw a meme to this effect the other day where, you know, there's no coronavirus at 10.59, but once 11 p.m. hits, or well, it might have been 9.59, 10, uh, one, once, uh, you know, the clock strikes, whatever it is, coronavirus just, you know, pops in on there. It's a, it's a nocturnal virus. It only comes out at night. That's the, uh, the real Friday the 13th spook this year. So when we have politicians going out after these measures, it is negatively affecting people that are already hanging on by a very thread. So to go back to the businesses that are trying to amend and adapt and, and move on, uh, the owner of the Side Street Pub and Grill says, listen, I mean, uh, this has proven to be a financial crunch. He said restaurants are going to be okay, but for pubs, this is now uh, eating into our golden hours. And he points out the obvious here that if you're forced to leave a pub at 11 p.m., people are just going to go to someone's home. So you're not actually dealing with the problem. If anything, you're making it less safe because now you don't have the contact tracing vet vehicle that a, a pub offers or some sort of institutional setting. And more importantly, people are going to be more confined if they go to someone's house. 
which again, you're not changing the desire to socialize. You're not changing the desire that people have to hang out with their friends, to have a few drinks. You're just shifting it from one place to another. And so much of this pandemic has been instilling false senses of security. And there's probably no greater example of that than masks. And I know I've talked about this a number of times, but remember the trajectory here. We went from uh, masks uh, are dangerous because they give you a false sense of security. They don't really do anything to, eh, right, you can wear a mask if you want one, to everyone should wear a mask, to everyone must wear a mask. And last week, or it might have been two weeks ago, the government shifted again to say, well, you know, maybe you should all have three layer masks. So now a lot of these, you know, special masks that people ordered are not necessarily going to be doing the job here. But here's where, again, I point out that mask orders went into effect quite a, quite a while ago, several months ago in, in many municipalities and province-wide in Ontario and other jurisdictions, masks became a requirement. So this so-called second wave, this surge in cases, has come well everyone has been forced by law to wear masks indoors. So perhaps, perhaps this is to say that if no one were wearing masks, the spike would have been sharper or would have come sooner. But suffice it to say, I don't think masks have actually done anything. And this is why people are, are starting to question it and instead are being vilified by government, they're being called a bunch of yahoos or whatever the case may be, they're being maligned by media when they decide they want to have these rallies and events because they want to criticize these measures. And, and the politics of masks have become, become quite important because mask shaming, two words that I'm not convinced have ever been put together in the history of the English language, mask shaming is now a thing where people that don't want to wear a mask or people that for medical reasons can't wear a mask are shamed by others because they're apparently killing grandma, even though uh, the cases are apparently getting so bad that to go back to those Ontario numbers, there would be 6,000 cases a day if the current restrictions were to hold, which include mandatory masks in pretty much all individual settings. You can take it off to, you know, have a sip of your water to eat at a restaurant or something like that. But if you look at these mask guidelines, uh, CBC did a story on this, a marketplace analysis, where they actually tested a bunch of masks. They tested over 20 different types of masks, ranging from, you know, the bandana that's just tied around to the N95s to masks that people have that you see every now and then that have like a, a filtration valve on them. And they found that there, there's no unanimity in, in terms of how effective they are. Some of them are actually not doing all that much at all. Some of them are, are doing quite well, like the blue surgical type masks or white cotton with inner layer, melt brown, non-woven polypropylene, which uh, just, you know, rolls off the tongue. In fact, I love white cotton with inner layer, melt blown, uh, something, something, something propylene. I think I might have said melt brown. I meant melt blown. Melt, melt brown is like one of the colors you can get it, like Benjamin Moore, I think. No, melt blown. So uh, <laughs> these are the masks that apparently were the top performers. There were some that did well, some that did not so well and the stylish ones like the sequin masks or the leopard print rayon masks or uh, the other polyester cotton ones uh, did not do well at all 
And the ones with the exhalation valves actually do nothing because you're, you're actually basically just turning your mouth into a spray bottle for the particles that could contain the viruses in, in that case. But what I find to be kind of bizarre about this is that their study was actually quite exhaustive. They did it with a University of Toronto professor at the School of Public Health, and they looked at particles that were similar in, in nature to the particles that uh, could contain coronavirus and could uh, be responsible for transmitting it. And they found that uh, basically when you go through these steps, the masks are not preventing the virus from getting out. And most of the masks that people are getting, most of the models are not. So when you have people that are just wearing a mask, because that's what the government says, you have to wear a mask, there's no guarantee that anyone's wearing a particularly effective mask. So that may be part of the problem. That may be part of why the mask mandate hasn't really done as much as it should. But I also think that there's something missing from the story here. Because when we look at the countries that had the greatest uh, success with the virus early on, uh, the most notable examples, I think, are Taiwan and uh, South Korea. They did masks right out of the way, right out of the gate. They also did border closures right out of the gate. And they kind of prevented the virus from being a thing in the first place. And it, it seems like once the virus is in, once it is endemic to your society or state or province or country, once that has happened, none of these measures are really going to do all that much. And I don't know if the takeaway from that is that, oh, well, we missed our shot and now we've got to live with it. I would say no. I'd say the takeaway is let's focus on, on the social distancing aspect, on doing what we can safely within the parameters of the country we want to live in. But let's not believe that we can kind of just get this down to zero when that was never practical unless we prevented it from getting above zero really in the first place. And, you know, one thing I, I have to point out here that I found interesting and actually kind of sickening because the very beginning of this, the part of the world that unleashed this virus on the rest of us, Wuhan in China, they actually seem to be quite fine with it afterwards. You know, they, they were uh, they were kind of like the first economy to kind of fully open and stay open. And they've not had a second wave, really. They, they've just been able to go back to life as normal while everyone else is somehow finding that things are worse now than they were at the very beginning. Now, I'm not to say that uh, Wuhan is at all something that we want to aspire to be. I, I think that it's been reckless. And I maintain what I said months ago, and have continued to say, which is that China must pay. And, and the world's capitulation and the World Health Organization's capitulation to China is absolutely sickening. But let's also be very keenly aware that they are not dealing with the restrictions the way that other places in the world are. And I'm not going to go the Trudeau route and say that China's my you know, favorite country in the world. China's dictatorship is so great. But I'm pointing out that there's something particularly unfair about the way that Western nations are dealing with this that doesn't seem to fly with what we see even elsewhere in Asia. So I, I want to point out that there are constitutional issues, there are economic issues, there are public health issues, there is a lot that goes into figuring out what is right and, and what is appropriate. But the tyranny of experts, as I've called it in the past, is such that we are kind of just completely relinquishing everything to these models that aren't 
necessarily telling the full picture. And this isn't about coronavirus trutherism. This isn't about saying this isn't real. I, I'm saying it's very much real, but a response needs to be measured. Otherwise, there's no way a society can survive. Remember the, the trajectory, the two weeks to flatten the curve, and then eight months later, here we are talking about another in Alberta two-week pause uh, to uh, pre prevent maybe some further restrictions. And then you have other parts of the province that aren't even pretending the two weeks. It's, a, it's as long as it takes, which is why Christmas is the next battleground. I think a lot of Canadians are looking at the holidays, uh, hopeful that uh, that'll be a moment where we can gather again and uh, see loved ones that we haven't seen in a long time. Whether or not we're able to do that depends entirely on all of us doing what we each need to do. Christmas is the next battleground right now. And I want to share with you something that was from a publication out in Seattle called The Stranger. And it's not that I hold this up as being the most uh, significant contribution to the field of, of nonfiction writing. In fact, I, I think it's actually quite a, a laugh, laughable joke, this publication. But there is an argument that is being put forward here that I, I think people need to understand to know where the other side, the pro-lockdown side, is approaching this from. And this thread says as follows, our childish obsession with seeing family on holidays is going to kill our families in record numbers. People don't respond well to scolds because they don't enjoy others treating them like children. But what the hell are we supposed to do with the fact that Americans keep booking cross-country trips just to pretend they like their grandmother's sad-ass candied yams? Seattle-Tacoma International Airport says the upcoming holiday travel season is projected to see the largest number of travelers since the COVID-19 pandemic at SeaTac, despite the fact that the country is now breaking records for daily infection cases. It goes on. Everyone should know by now after the COVID waves following Memorial Day weekend and July 4th that these small family gatherings spread the virus like wildfire. But despite clear warnings and clear precedent, all these walking Greek tragedies still plan to endanger the people they love to prove they love them and because they earnestly miss them, etc., etc. But come on. And then it gets a little profane there, but says, stay home, buy granny a turkey smoothie and put her on speakerphone this year. Wait till next year, people. Now, look, I'm all for a good polemic every now and then. The danger in this is not the F-bomb. The danger is in this attitude that people are viewing, you know, spending time with family as inherently non-essential. When for so many people, that isn't viable. That is not a tenable position to have. And I mentioned earlier this uh, dynamic between essential and, and non-essential and, and the danger in allowing government to decide what is necessary and unnecessary. We still do not know the full scope of the effect of the pandemic on people socially, depression, suicide. Anecdotally, I've heard from people in the mental health sector that have just said it's absolutely terrible. It'll take quite a while before we have numbers to really show just how severious that is. And then you look at drug use and other things, crime, uh, job loss, business shutdown. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. But you have people saying that, you know what, visiting your family is non-essential. And I agree, maybe you don't need to have the big giant Griswold family Christmas, but that doesn't mean that, you know, seeing an elderly relative who's lonely, who might not have much time left in the world, is should, should be at all characterized as the evil that it is by a great many people. Because it's not. And, you know, the longer this goes on, the longer a new dynamic becomes apparent, which is how do people want to live the last years of their lives? 
If this stretches beyond the one-year mark, which it looks at this point like it very may well, then people are going to have to start asking that question of, okay, is this how I want to spend my last days? I'm not talking about mass suicide. I'm not talking about like, you know, a Jonestown scenario here. Don't drink the bunch, people. What I am talking about is that when you have to kind of just go without something, without an indulgence for a little while, it's like, okay, you know what? We could all live without it. When when that indulgence is something that you've always been able to take for granted, which is, you know, seeing your family, which is having a, a Christmas dinner, these are, are not things that you can take away without necessarily risking societal, social, personal, or emotional consequences. So it's, it's actually quite offensive that people are saying, ah, you don't need that. Maybe you don't, but other people do. There are other people where this is kind of the only social interaction they'll have had all year. And if there's a way to do it safely, then that should be explored. That should be explored. So now we have, again, the CBC story that uh, because of Ontario's COVID-19 resurgence, will people adjust their Christmas plans? And this is, mark my words, it's November 13th. In the coming two weeks, we're going to be told that Christmas is going to be canceled. Give it two weeks. I'm not going to predict the exact day, but I certainly by the end of November, I think we're going to be told that Christmas has to be canceled. And they'll say, consider doing Zoom Christmas dinners, Zoom gift unwrapping ceremonies. Uh, you know what? We already heard the BC public health officer say Santa is immune from COVID, but you have to leave him hand sanitizer and no milk or cookies because you know what? You can't turn your house into a dine-in establishment or Doug Ford and Jason Kenney and uh, <laughs> all the other governments will show Shut him down. Uh, so you have to have hand sanitizer for Santa, but he's COVID immune. Don't worry. But uh, none of the other things that are going to happen in your house are COVID immune. So you got to cancel all those. And and again, the reason I'm so keenly aware of this is because every single time one of these holidays comes up, we're told that the next one will be fine, and then it's not. And again, don't be irresponsible. Don't be reckless. But I will not stand by while government starts telling people that this indefinite lockdown is not going to come without separate risks than what it's supposedly protecting against. We've got to take a break. More of The Andrew Lawton Show up next. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. So here's a great illustration of the problems with government determining essential or non-essential. Let's talk about Carlos Larmond, or Larmond, who was jailed in 2016 after authorities found that he tried to leave Canada with the intention of joining ISIS, which is a criminal act. He and his brother were part of an Ottawa-area terror cell. He was busted, and as such, he's managed to end up behind bars. Now, he's uh, slowly served out his time and is now living in a Calgary halfway house, but he still has a number of restrictions that he has gone to the parole board to have overturned. And after his release from prison, he's decided that he wanted to go to a ski resort and stay overnight. He wanted to take a little getaway with his girlfriend turned fiance, who will soon uh, potentially be his wife. And what has happened is the parole board has granted this. Yeah, the Parole Board of Canada has decided that, yes, he should have the right to go to this ski resort on an overnight trip, despite the fact that he is, uh, I would say, asking to do something that is quite non-essential. Now, part of the reason I, I think this story is important is because I thought that we could call him the ski hottie. 
And once I thought of that, I was like, I have to talk about this on the show just so I can drop the ski hottie pun. So so the ski hottie, Carlos Larmond, uh, gets to take this little overnight uh, visit. The reason he's at the halfway house is because of, quote, his need for constant close monitoring, unquote. Uh, but apparently the girlfriend in question is described by the parole board as a positive support. So positive, in fact, that maybe he's not trying to commit acts of terror anymore, despite the fact that he converted to Islam 11 or more years ago, and he was trying to leave the country with the express purpose of partaking in terrorist activity. And, and despite the fact that uh, there are some you know, questions about whether he, his girlfriend may be a positive support. The parole board also said last year that he has shown, quote, problematic institutional behavior and security concerns, unquote, attempting to radicalize fellow inmates. So it's not like, oh, you know what, that was, uh, he's seen the error of his ways. He's just been trying to radicalize other people and authority figures and uh, others have found that, found that he's threatened them and he's been convicted of five offenses during his time in prison. But apparently he's been compliant generally. So I don't know how you square this, that the report said on one hand that he has not shown change. He's attempted to radicalize others. His uh, potential harm to the community is exceptional. And then later on, they say, okay, well, you've been compliant now. So uh, he's had 10 months of compliance, which means he gets a little ski getaway with his girlfriend. And by the way, you know, I think terrorism is a very serious thing. I also think that we need to take the terror conduct of people very seriously because anytime we hear of these so-called lone wolf attacks, it's almost entirely the case that they were on the radar, on someone's radar for quite a while or some agency's radar. And I, I'm not at all saying that this guy is going to do anything. Look, if he's kind of shed this, I'm very grateful. But I do think that you need a little bit more than just 10 months after trying to radicalize people, threaten uh, jail guards and stuff like that, you need a little bit more for anyone to be able to say, okay, you, you've clearly changed. So uh, here we are with uh, giving ski vacations to uh, convicted terrorists and, and only in Canada. I'm sure the $10.5 million check can't be all that far behind. And just in, in complete nonsense terms, let's look at what's happening in Halifax right now. Sir John A. McDonald High School has, I bet you know how this story goes before I even say it, decided to change its name to be more inclusive. Yes, this is coming from the principal of the school who said in a letter to parents that uh, McDonald's school policy for Indigenous children and the passage of the Indian Act in 1867 caused irreparable harm to generations of Indigenous people. She says, I feel that Indigenous students, when they see that name up, are not getting full inclusion, so it's really a no-brainer. The school has 1,000 students, 30 of them are Indigenous, and the principal wants that uh, the school's name is not going to at all uh, threaten or harm these people. Now, it's not actually clear whether anyone was complaining about it, and not that that matters too much, because I'm sure that at some point someone would have complained about it if they hadn't already. But it's another example of Canada just being completely devoid of respect for its history and founding and allowing this slow erasure, or perhaps not all that slow anymore, but this erasure nonetheless of Canada's founding from the public square. And it's a statue today, it's a school name tomorrow, it's a school name the next day, a statue the day after that. And, and eventually, all of these people who are supporting this, who say, no, 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 it's not about uh, erasing history, it's just about contextualizing it and moving it, eventually those people have won, 
and will have realized that the joke was on us because they aren't actually interested in the history at all. They just said they were. The, these are the people that are content to say that we do not have a country to be proud of. We do not have anything to celebrate in our past, that Canada is this genocidal state and, and nothing else. And this came up in Alberta not that long ago, by the way. The Alberta NDP was trying to recognize that Canada should be included alongside the perpetrators of the Holocaust, the Armenian genocide, uh, the great uh, genocides of history, the Rwandan genocide. They wanted Canada included as a genocidal state. And that is, is particularly egregious for two reasons. Number one, because th there's actually no similarity whatsoever between the Canada that exists today and the, Can and the versions of, of countries that they're describing. But also, it's, it's devoid of any sort of legal understanding, too. Because this comes from the missing, uh, the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls inquiry, which said Canada is engaged in genocide. And remember, Justin Trudeau stood up and agreed with this. He he accepted those findings. But for a country that supposedly is actively committing genocide, because they weren't talking about past, they were talking about present. For a country that's supposedly actively committing genocide, no one seems to be doing anything about it. If you were a country that were actively committing genocide, you'd think there would be forces within that country that are, are reporting you to the International Criminal Court, for example. But that's not, ha not happening. Because it was a, a PR branding, it was not a legal designation. And, and that was where all of these people who say that Canada is committing genocide right now and, and should be held up a, as though we're on a moral, equal, a moral equivalence to Nazi Germany, give your head a shake. But it's revealing in a lot of ways as to the mindset that a lot of these people have towards Canada. This is not to say, this is not to whitewash Canada's history. It's not to whitewash controversial paths of Canadian figures. One great example of this from the last week is Alexander Hamilton. So I, I am a, a big American history fan, and I have seen Hamilton, and I know uh, the Hamilton musical is not itself a, a part of the historical record, but it does a really good job at, at showcasing the story of a founding father who, for a, a great period of time, was not actually focused on all that much. And the narrative that was created about Hamilton was that he was an immigrant, which is not true. He moved from one part of the British Empire to another, but that's, I digress. That, that he was an immigrant, that he was this ragtag group. In the, in the musical, all the characters, or most of the characters, are, are black, even though the real figures weren't. Um, but, but Hamilton was like meant to be this great immigrant hero. And this musical, which I thought was very well done, and, and I'm not a big rapper, but I can sing along to a couple of them, uh, ha has kind of put Alexander Hamilton into the public consciousness. Well, last week, a historian <laughs> revealed findings that Alexander Hamilton was a slave owner. Now, most people would not be surprised by this because that was kind of the, the nature of the era. Alexander Hamilton's wife became an, an abolitionist after his passing, but he was, according to his financial records, which no one had apparently looked into, the financial records of America's Treasury Secretary, he was a slave owner. Now, the takeaway from this, I think, is actually hilarious because now people are going to be joking around uh, to say, oh, well, we got to cancel Hamilton now. Maybe it won't be a joke, though, because now Alexander Hamilton is a slave owner. We can't have anything to do with him. What about the orphanage that uh, his wife founded in New York? Oh, that's got to go. So Hamilton is now a slave owner. I would say, OK, this proves something very important. 
that good people who do great things, who do positive things at a point in time when certain other behaviors were acceptable might have engaged in those behaviors. And we can thank God as a country and as a society that we've moved beyond that and realize how terrible that is. But no one is interested in nuance, no one is interested in context, and and no one is interested in actually understanding how history works. I mean, I'm sorry, are, are we going to look at, you know, the Acropolis in Greece and say, oh, we got to tear down the Acropolis because it doesn't have a transgender bathroom because uh, that's so important. The Acropolis needed a transgender bathroom and how dare those transphobic ancient Greeks not put a, a transgender bathroom there or the Colosseum or the Eiffel Tower, whatever the case may be. I mean, the, the absurdity of trying to impose 2020 on periods in history where the dynamics and the battles were so vastly different than what they are today is ridiculous. But this is what's happening, and this is why no one will ever survive this scourge. And John A. Macdonald, who is a hero in Canada's Confederation, without whom Canada would not exist, certainly not the Canada we have today, uh, was actually progressive for his era on Indigenous issues. That's the great irony of this all. And and that's not a positive irony. It's actually quite sickening that, that this guy's memory is being vilified despite being kind of a positive force at the time on that. Uh, and now he's going to be gone from most schools. Uh, the curriculums themselves will not focus on the greatness of McDonald's uh, Confederation experiment, but will actually focus on the sheer horror that these people were ever acknowledged in, in history. And, and in, in 50 years, 100 years, all of the people who are seen as progressive today will be seen as regressive by whichever generation or movement comes next. That is how history works. So do I care about what a school in Halifax is named? No. I'm sure many of my listeners in Atlantic Canada might care. I don't care about the school names of it. We could all just do numbered schools like they do in the U.S., PS1972 or something like that, or not PS1867. That one wouldn't work, clearly. We can all do that, but but my concern here is on the way that we treat our country, which is so central to the way we view our country by virtue of historical figures. So if you are not respecting the country you live in, you're not going to have any respect for the people who founded it, and that's got to change. We have to wrap things up here. My thanks to all of you for tuning into the program. We'll talk to you next week with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.